Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 49, Horror Games. Recorded Thursday, October 2nd of 2014, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, Brandon, and Ken. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Brandon. And I'm Ken. We have Ken Height joining us tonight, folks. Mm-hmm. Ken, for the two listeners of ours that don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm a, a writer and game designer, primarily tabletop role-playing games, although I do a little bit of writing you know, wherever else. I've also written some non-fiction stuff and a little a smattering of fiction, mostly Cthulhu Mythos short stories. The center of the target there is RPGs, and then around it is stuff that RPG players might also want to read. I guess my most characteristic or famous resume item might be Trail of Cthulhu for Pograin Press, but also Nice Black Agents for Pograin Press, as well as Suppressed Transmission and GURPS Horror for Steve Jackson, a lot of stuff for World of Darkness, uh, two Star Trek games back-to-back. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. That's pretty much sort of the, the short overview, anyway. Awesome. And... You also have a podcast. I do. I am one half of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. I play Ken on that podcast. Robin Laws, of course, is the Robin, and we talk about stuff. Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com. That stuff is always got at least one gaming hut, as we call them. And then the other three segments in the show can vary from answering listener questions to doing time travel-based interventions in history to fix things or occasionally make things worse, consulting a cultist in which I pull back the veil on some circus folk or carny bunko artist who has also got an exciting reputation in the world of the occult, and uh, various other sorts of things. We have a food hut where Robin and I talk about food, which sounds like dancing about architecture when you think about it, but people seem to like it, so there you go. Yeah, and I can tell you that Peter and I are big fans. Brandon, I don't know if you listen. I have not listened. It sounds familiar, but... Peter and I will hound you about that in a bit. I mean, that's fine. Yeah, when you get around to it, we will probably stuff all hundred-some episodes into you almost simultaneously, and you will thank us for it afterwards. That's great. <laughs> Quite the car trip. <laughs> Yeah, look to look forward to, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, you're going to drive all the way from New York to Los Angeles and possibly back again. Yeah, just so you have time to listen. Yeah. There was a, a guy who came up to us at Gen Con last year. He was very complimentary and very full, and he, and he had his son with him. His son looked like he was about 13, and he, was, and he said, I just want to thank you for your podcast. My son and I listened to it all the way here from, you know, and I forget where he drove in from, but it was somewhere far. It was like Minnesota or something. And I just, I looked at the hollow, haunted eyes of that kid, and I thought, well, there you go. There's, I've, I've earned my share of your therapy bills now, I guess. <laughs> Uh, that kid will never listen again. Or I've Stockholm syndrome, and that's possible. Yeah, that's it. That was my hope. Well, speaking of funny stuff that uh, happened at conventions, years ago I actually bumped into you in person at um, Gen Con right after GURPS Cabal had come out. Mm-hmm. And in a rare example of something getting funnier over time, you signed my copy Hey, Marcia, come and look at the Satanist. <laughs> <laughs> Considering where we are now, I just couldn't resist bringing that up. That may have been a John Cavallic-inspired bet that went horribly wrong, I suspect. Oh, it was. I can even point you at the comic. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, good times. All right. Ken, uh, before we really dive into uh, our remaining news and our scripture and our topic, I did want to give you a chance to plug any project you've got upcoming or current that you want to interest people in. Well, I think the thing that's current that I really want to interest people in is the Dracula dossier, which is the big collaborative improvisational campaign for Knights Black Agents that we're kickstarting possibly right now as this segment airs. Go to Kickstarter and look for Pelgrane and Dracula and see if you can find it. And if not, go to my Twitter or my Facebook and look at the any given post and I'll bet there will be a link to it. But yeah, it's going to be... The big Armitage files, if you're familiar with Trail of Cthulhu, but it's going to be the Armitage files for Knights Black Agents, in which you have stumbled on the first draft, the original version of Dracula that Bram Stoker wrote as the after-action report for the failed British intelligence operation in 1894 to recruit a vampire as an asset. And over the years since then, three generations of MI6 analysts have annotated that document with 
their own brushes with Dracula as, as MI6 again tries and fails to recruit him. And it is your job in the modern era to follow those clues going all the way back to 1894 to 1940 or to 1977 or the present day. And in any order that you, the players, decide to, you follow those clues to track Dracula to his lair in Europe and finally, once and for all, kill him for the good of everyone. So that's uh, hopefully going to be a great deal of fun to play. It's already been a great deal of fun to research and slightly less fun to actually write, but it's pretty sound. Gareth Hanrahan has been my cohort and collaborator on that, so I think that we've produced a pretty great a pretty great adventure book for people who want to hunt and kill Dracula in the name of all that is good. It does sound exciting. I got to tell you that. This yeah. might if budget permits be the first thing I ever back on Kickstarter. Well, there you go. I'm happy to break you into that deadly and uh, febrile world there. Awesome. I will play that segment for my wife so that when I explain this to her, I can say, no, it's it's Ken's fault. Yeah, Ken did that. Look at him. Right. Or you can play the video that Will Heinmart shot our little, um, uh, and cut together our little uh, promotional video, which there's probably going to be like two or three versions of it on the Kickstarter page. And Perfect. There's lovely music and spooky graphics and everything that a kid wants. Marvelous. All right. Uh, so, speaking of RPG podcasts, I do have one quick bit of news. The third annual RPG Podcasters Charity Drive is in the works and coming up. It'll start November 1st, as usual. Uh, we're going to be participating. We've got a few other podcasts lined up. Uh, there's a link to it in the show notes. You can find all of the participating podcasts at razoo.com, R-A-Z-O-O.com, slash team, slash RPG 2014. And, and are we supporting the Bodana Group again? We are, in fact, supporting the Bodana Group again. Excellent. Hooray! Which, uh, for those not in the know, is a group that uses tabletop role-playing games as cognitive therapy for troubled youths and uh, abused children. Oh, that's nice. And they also yeah. make a really good convention in yes. Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yep, their primary fundraiser every year is Save Against Fear, and uh, we like to think we help chip in over the holidays for them as well. So, And uh, real quick, if you want to buy anything from our online store head over to save again uh, excuse me head over to savingthegamepodcast.org you'll see a banner there with some of our many fine products all of which i designed like in my spare time late at night so i apologize all right actually Shall a lot we... of them are cooler than grant's self-deprecating note um personality will uh allow him to say but yeah there's some kind of designs just, over there kind of you to say well let's uh let's get into this shall we yeah, let's. All right. Uh, our scripture starts with number 16, 32 to 34, and I'll go ahead and take this one. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the men, along with their households and all the followers who were standing with them, and everything they owned. So they went down alive into the grave, all along with all of their belongings. The earth closed over them, and they all vanished from among the people of Israel. All the people around them fled when they heard their screams. The earth will swallow us too, they cried. Psalms 91.5 You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Matthew 6.34 Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Second Timothy 1.7 For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So, well, we've got... Ken Hyde on, we figured we might as well talk about horror games. It seemed appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I wanted to ask everybody here, and especially you, Ken, is this. And it may, might be an easy question. It might not. I don't know. Let me ask you, what is the fun of a horror story? Well, I mean, I think for everyone, the specific fun sort of varies because everyone's fun is different in... I mean, you can say, what's the fun of golf? And five golfers will give you five different answers. But I think that the sort of baseline fun is is the combination of just the sheer, you know, um, neurological thrill of keying yourself up and letting it all go in a sort of text in which no actual monsters are eating you. Like a roller coaster is sort of the classic example. You know, you, you go, you know, clanking up the side of the roller coaster, then it lets go, and for that free fall moment, you're in mortal terror for your life, but 
you know, assuming you're at a roller coaster that's been inspected in the last decade, you're not actually going to die. And that release, what Aristotle called catharsis in the more, more uh, hoity-toity literary critis- critics world, is the same sort of thing that you feel just on a pure glandular level or an endocrine level when you read a good horror story or you watch a good horror movie or you play a good horror game. You have that same keying up of tension, you've got building up of all the all the, the juices and hormones and secretions and whatever, and then you let it all out in a moment of, of climactic terror and then you are alive still to talk about it. And I think that it's all those things. It's the build up, it's the release, and then the being alive to talk about it that provide that um, that full menu of, of responses to horror. Yeah, I think that's about as good of a definition as we're going to get as to why it's fun. <laughs> I mean, you can't ever talk someone into having fun, right? There are yeah. people who, yeah. who just don't like horror. They, they are not fond of that given sensation. Oh, that would be me. There are people who don't like roller coasters. And so you can't, like, say, no, no, no. If you watch a really good horror, if you watch The Haunting uh, by Robert Weiss, or you read The Color Out of Space, you'll get it. It's like, not necessarily. There are just people in this world who don't like chocolate, and having the world's best chocolate is not going to convince them that they like chocolate. Well, and then I think there's also people like myself and Grant to a certain extent, where Sturgeon's Law is even more in effect than it normally is, and instead of like the top 10% being good, we'll see the top 1% or 2% as being good. Yeah. Because right. I don't like a lot of horror, but there are certain works that I can point to that I've I've definitely enjoyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for me, the the medium makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. I don't at all like horror movies. I don't always like horror books, with the exception of Lovecraft and other cosmic horror things. Horror games are a blast for me. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately it comes down to, A, I don't like being startled, and B, um, I as a player have some agency in a game that's all about taking agency away from the character. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, it, it's different strokes for different folks to be as cliched as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And for me, I just have never really enjoyed horror. I had actually a DM who was one of the first DMs I had when I was a kid, first learning about Dungeons and Dragons, who actually really, really liked horror. And while I played in the games that he actually was able to make them fun and interesting, there was an immense pushback from me because I just, didn't like the concept of horror as a genre, although I now kind of like the idea of writing horror, but just the act of experiencing it myself is sort of... Still not quite there yet, huh, Brandon? Yeah. Right. I mean, I I know what that's like because I've got a player in my home group who is not a horror fan. He doesn't like it in any uh, medium. He doesn't go to horror movies. He doesn't read horror fiction. And he plays in my games, which often have a horror component to them, because he likes enough other aspects of the game. He likes the intellectual problem-solving or the or the nature of the world, or he likes role-playing. Um, but I can't run, for example, a Cthulhu game with him in it because then the game is like all horror. The whole game is supposed to be focused on that one you know, emotional uh, state, even if you're modulating it between dread and terror and, and gore and whatever else. Uh, and so he just doesn't like it. And... You know, I can't bring him. I can bring him to water, but I can't make him drink. To cliche you for cliche, I guess. And so I, you know, I think that that's sort of a good thing to remember is that it's just some people don't like some things. I try and provide enough entertainment of other sorts in every game that I run with him in it, so that I know that I'm not leaning too heavily on the crutch. Right. I think that's actually some pretty good advice if you have someone who isn't interested in horror and you want to run a horror game. Try to find other things that might be enjoyable and put them in the game also so it's not all just oh well i this is things i dislike Mm -hmm. yeah well and i get the impression that horror can be a little bit like fruit and cooking it can either be the main point of the dish like in a pie or you can use it to accentuate other stuff like when you use it in a glaze over meats right? right yeah yeah and plenty of people like fresh strawberries but don't like cooked strawberries to continue your parallel there Everything about role-playing games, and whether it's horror or not, is knowing your players. And because the stakes are so much higher, both in terms of uh, the success is a better success when you do succeed, and the failure can often be a worse failure when you fail, it's more important to know your players in horror, I think, than in other sorts of gaming, where it's all like, yeah, I guess I agree that orcs should be killed, whatever. Well, I'd say that in even in writing a story, uh, the protagonist is way more important in a horror story than a lot of other types of stories, because you kind of have to identify with that protagonist a whole heck of a lot or else you're not going to get the benefits of it. Now, we have the benefit of a role-playing game is, of course, people are going to identify with their characters because 
they're literally playing them. But I still think that it's way harder to set up a game for horror than it is to say, oh, well, we're going to do a dungeon crawl. Because you could make dungeon crawl characters at home, but to make a horror characters, you kind of all have to be together and say, okay, we're going for this thing. Right. I mean, that's that collaborative aspect of it is so much more important in horror. It, and it really does help, like you say, if everyone makes up their characters together so that they, A, no one is accidentally stepping on anyone's niche protection. You don't, you don't wind up doing any accidental damage to uh, player unity. And then also, so that the players can agree, why are they all, you know, jointly and severally, you know, going after horrors as opposed to not going after horrors, which is, of course, the normal reaction. You heard there was a vampire in the mysterious old house. You'd say, well, good good to know. I'm staying well away from that mysterious old house. Thanks, information. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> I'm now taking a, a route that's three blocks longer, yes. so I don't have to yeah. go by that takes, house. It takes me through the pizza joint so that I smell like garlic. Yeah. Or, or, or you have people go, oh, there's a vampire in that house? Okay, well, I buy garlic, and I buy all these other things, and we plant it out, and we go in and we kill the vampire, and yay, actually, yay. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, that's, you know, that then becomes the GM's fault, not the player's fault. The GM has to be ready for players to do proactive things. And if your players are the sort who err on the side of action as opposed to the side of turtling up, that's good. That, you are a lucky GM, and I encourage you to, to nurture that response. Yes, yeah. definitely. I, I yeah. think this kind of comes back to some of the things that I had mentioned earlier in the Monster in the House type of story where uh, the setting's important to you sort of need to isolate the players a little bit and take away some of their ability to run away from things. Kind of like, I think in, in, in Ravenloft, you have the mists of Ravenloft, where you can walk into them and it takes you some other random place. So that's a really great way where you can take away the control of the character because, well, you're walking into the mist and you're appearing in a completely different area and you're still in trouble because I want you to go through the... Uh, horror terror thing yeah you know it it strikes me that one of the hardest things about running a horror game and ken this is something i'd really like you to speak to if you can is the fact that horror necessarily involves taking away a little bit of player agency about their character some of the more rational metagame responses if you like like you know this is a terrible place i'll leave can't really apply and horror is very often about helplessness and so we have to play into that and that taking away of player agency is one of those things that I think you have to be very delicate about, don't you? Again, it depends on your players. If your players are sort of people who've been through the mill a couple of times, they will understand the difference between a Call of Cthulhu adventure and a Dungeons and Dragons adventure, and they will know by looking at the cover of the box. And this happened even, you know, in the early 80s. People began to self-select and, and figure these things out. They'll know what kinds of of play or appropriate, just like if you uh, are playing Yahtzee instead of Shadowrun, you know that there's going to be different table conventions. But, <laughs> well, there um, will be about the same number of dice. There will be the same number of dice, which is no, why I picked that. No, 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 no. There's going to be way more dice in Shadowrun. Uh, way more dice in Shadowrun. The point that I was eventually going to make is that the players will meet you halfway, and I think that you need to begin by sort of either getting their explicit buy-in or earn their buy-in by being a really trustworthy GM, such that if you have to remove their agency in play, as opposed to the beginning where you say, seriously, guys, this is the story of the people who are going to wind up in the vampire house, not the people who avoid the vampire house. Build characters who go to a vampire house. And if you just ask a player and you say, why is your character the kind of guy who goes toward instead of away from vampires? What's What makes them do that? What makes her that person instead of the one who responds rationally and you give the player a chance to give you that answer they will provide a reason for their own helplessness or their own obsession that will be a million times better and more evocative and often hose them worse than you ever would have done if you just said you the mists of ravenloft teleport you in a vampire house <laughs> because that is the kind of thing that people will push back at and you know for good reason i'm starting to see why you wrote two different settings where the uh the player characters are intelligence operatives of one kind or another that are going to go towards the horror instead of away. I can see that this frustration is neatly addressed in both Project Sandman from the Madness dossier and uh, Knight's Black Agents. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, the um, the notion of drives uh, to explain why you're moving toward instead of away from adventure is something that Robin pioneered, I think, in Fear itself, and then I, you know, stole with both hands and great acclaim and, and put into Trail of Cthulhu, because they help you, at, you know, even if you never actually use the mechanical stick and carrot, they give you a role-playing reason. You're like, oh, I know why I'm going into that haunted house. It's because I have, uh, you know, cursed blood, and it's going to draw me in. And so I I just have to role-play that. And that gives the player a doorway in that they've selected for themselves. Yeah, that's one of the things I really liked about the Dread game I got to play at Fear of the Con. The uh, character questionnaires that everybody fills out at the start, All the GM asks a bunch of leading questions like, why do you love New York so much? Or what... You know, why are you afraid to go back to your hometown? Well, now we've established, hey, I know something about New York. I've got this hometown, you know, all that sort of... It's good narrative stuff ahead of time, but it also lets him frame a story where everybody is connected to the thing through those questions that he's asking. Yeah, so I think even, that's that's one of those bits of dread that is so much better than the Jenga mechanic that I always feel it's kind of unfair that uh, people like the, the, the what I consider to be the weakest part of the game instead of the strongest part. I well, always feel uh, like the guy who made up that uh, question answering answering um, uh, system was like, "Oh, come on, where's the love for me?" <laughs> it, it's a great piece of it, and I, I love it. I will say I like the Jenga mechanic because the the feedback of the nervousness as the tower gets shaky for me amped up the the worry and fear and tension in the game. Oh, yeah. yeah I think from a player perspective, it, it works a lot better than it does from a GM perspective. It, it, admittedly, I've never tried to run it. I've played with enough um, uh, <laughs> with enough people who have been imbibing that I don't want to trust the pacing of my game to whether or not they are going to knock over a Jenga tower. Well, That's and then true. there's people like my wife, who's a professional seamstress out there, where she's like, how many do I need to pull? 27? Okay. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Come on, it's not fair. It, it, yeah. It, it, yeah, I played with uh, Steve Dorjura from Postcards from the Dungeon, and yeah, it was, oh, three, four? Eh, not a problem. We'd look over real quick, look back, he's got all four stacked up neatly mm-hmm. on the top of the tower. It's just, come on, Steve, you, you can't knock it over, really? Your, your real-life <laughs> dexterity score is 27, and that's affecting the pace of the game. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I did want to ask you, Ken, is I, one of my favorite games is Unknown Armies. Right. Which as it has it, it's it's an excellent game and I've heard rumors of a third edition and I'm very excited. One of the the mechanics that it has is different sanity tracks which kind of correspond to different types of horror. Uh I'd mentioned helplessness a couple of times that's one of them. There are several others. Is there any particular type of horror or fear that you feel works better or worse or that you particularly prefer when you're writing games anything along those lines well i mean everyone's got the things that scare them and those become the things that they write most effectively i mean brom stoker was was scared of uh, powerful people outside his social circle coming in and wrecking stuff um he's scared about romantic uh, rivalries for his wife he's scared about a lot of things his fears turn into dracula lovecraft obviously was scared of foreigners and he was scared of uh, dying without God, and he was scared of all the other stuff that he was scared of, and he put all those into his horror. So I think if you're a game designer and you have a specific fear that you're afraid of, you're going to write a more effective fear. And I can't sit here from my Olympian perch and say, games about the fear of rats are inherently scarier than games about other kinds of fear, because if you're not, a, if you're not scared of rats, if, if Willard did not you know, creep you the heck out, then it's not going to really help you. And And so... Of the sort of more general types of fear that uh, Stephen King talks about when he talks about dread versus terror versus gore, I think that those work really well if you make them all part of that balanced horror breakfast. And and you go from one to the other. If you stay on one note all the time, it begins to get stale and forced. And the great thing about horror is that there are those three keys that you can uh, remodulate it into and um, uh, take that... That same fear, your individual fear of a rat, it can be a dread, as in rats in the walls, where they're just sort of, you know, symbolizing the the decay of your sanity. It can be a terror, as in, you know, the hordes of them are sort of swarming towards you in Dracula or whatever. Or it can be gore, like in Witch House, where the rat thing is chewing its way out from the guy's, you know, insides. And that's just an innately gory, visceral horror. But you can take that same individual fear and you can play it all up and down that spectrum. And you can do that with any fear, right? Yeah. 
Uh, I remember actually reading a, an actual play of an Unknown Armies game where they did that with one guy's fear of dogs. Just it was uh, it played out very well. Yeah, and you could do that with you know the isolation and the self and the violence and the unnatural and the helplessness. You could do a dog as the trigger for all five of those. So I I think we've talked some about how to make our game scary. I I have kind of a, a more metaphysical question for you here. Beyond the obvious benefit of fun, is there a a use to horror in terms of character development or even spirituality? Is there something in it that's more than just a, a visceral sort of fun? Is is there something that we can learn from horror? I mean, my my nature is to raise my hackles if people say that art of any kind has to have a use besides its own experience, right? That, you know, if you're watching a movie and it doesn't tell you that homelessness is bad, then you've wasted your time watching that movie or whatever it is. And I and I think that if you are trying to convey something other than entertainment, which I will use as a broader term than fun, uh, because obviously it's not necessarily fun qua fun to watch The Hills Have Eyes, but it is very entertaining, then you, I think, run the risk of deforming the actual value, the actual core artistic value of whatever you're doing because you're aiming at a didactic or a pragmatic purpose. And it's like, no, role-playing games teach us math. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe they teach you to count to 20 or whatever, but they're not really there to teach you math. They're there to let you enjoy smacking kobolds around. And so I would question that. But obviously, art does, uh, if if done, you you know, if experienced correctly, I guess is the way to put it, does elevate you, it does expand your understanding of other, you know, frameworks of the universe, it lets you connect to the human and everybody. Those are all valuable processes, but I think that they have to be inherent to the arts, you know, uh, entertainment or, um, uh, you know, communicative value, just the value of experiencing the art can't be separated from that. Um, Horror, I think, inherently creates a understanding that our life is fragile and that things bad things could happen to it which is you know certainly good spiritually if you're talking about you know the value of humility or the value of prag- of prudence um you know don't walk into the vampire house kids but i i don't know that you know i would want to design or play a horror game that was mainly designed pragmatically or didactically just because I think that it, you you wind up really losing a lot on the game aspect of it. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, do you feel like if you've been playing horror at, and at the end of a really great Unknown Armies or Call of Cthulhu session and you emerge and you say, I mean, first of all, you can't really quantify necessarily the effect of, a, of an artistic experience. I mean, you leave a great concert and you don't know that, you know, seeing Bob Mould has made you a better person. Um, you know that you are really glad that you went through that and you're a more you know, a fuller person or a larger person maybe at the end of it, I guess. Yeah. Do art experiences, I mean, do we use them in in that sense? I I certainly don't think we do it consciously. You know, certainly not with a a plan ahead of time. Well, I'm I'm intending to learn this going into it and, you know, hit on these themes and, and, you know, really try and take this away from what is otherwise, you know, an entertaining experience that's valuable in its own right. Yeah. Yeah, I think perhaps you can learn something about yourself afterwards. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we've talked about all the time, you know, yeah. you know especially the opportunity to use a role-playing game to get into other people's shoes and, you know, learn sympathy for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think that that's, but that that's something that is true, I think, of any well-done role-playing game, you know, regardless of genre, is that you're... You're allowing yourself to experience other aspects of what it is to be human, and I think that that's just a valuable that that's a valuable thing. And the fact that we have a role playing game as as a doorway into it, it's similar to if you go to a movie and you and you live vicariously through that other character, and you say, "Oh, well, look at that. That's how I would be if I were, you know, Mission Impossible Agent Tom Cruise instead of me, or whatever." Although maybe that might not be the ideal place to come away for <laughs> either for any sort of pragmatic <laughs> instruction in life, but you know what I mean. Yeah, Bourne movie would probably be better if you were gonna. Yes. <laughs> well, the the the, the Bourne movies again, perhaps not a model to live from, but certainly. No. Um, uh... But better quality entertainment, certainly. Yes. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Strangely enough, Tom Cruise in science fiction movies, I enjoy. Well, I mean, he's. He, I think it, again, it depends on the film. I mean, Edge of Tomorrow was amazingly good, uh, certainly for a Tom Cruise film. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that the one where he's like the last guy on Earth and he's prospecting for cash registers or whatever it was was anything to write home about. All right. All right. So 
we've been talking a lot about horror games, but I'd like to get into how do we plan and run and actually give some advice because I mean it's great that we can just sit here and talk to Ken Height, but while we have him, we should pick his brains so that we all get all his secrets and then we can steal them and use them and, and you know be great authors and horror owners of horror games ourselves. Huzzah. I'm told there are a large uh, catalog of books and supplements that allow you to do that as well. Wink, wink, hint, hint. Check the sure. show notes for links. That, right. That that very that very thing had occurred to me as though um, uh, by magic. Um, yeah, I, that's what Nightmares of Mine was when I wrote it for Iron Crown, and then I took uh, pretty much all of that book and turned it into GURPS Horror 3rd Edition, and then I expanded that by about 40%, and now GURPS Horror 4th Edition is your one-stop shop for pretty much everything that I think about running horror, but I can say, uh, sort of to reiterate what I said at the top of the show, that the first and most important thing you have to do, or else nothing else is going to work, is have everyone at the table willing to play horror. Because it's, like I said, it's a collaborative uh, emotion. I mean, you can't, you, you just like you can't make someone like horror, you can't make them be scared, certainly around a table with dice and, and character sheets. I mean, you could, you know, pull a gun on them, but that's not really the same sort of thing, and I don't encourage that. A very different sort of horror. Very different sort <laughs> yeah. of horror. Um, but, uh, but, but the way to create an atmosphere of horror at the table always has to begin with getting the players buy-in. And you can get players who are like, you know, like my one uh, player who's like, I'm okay, I don't mind it if you're building a horror atmosphere for the other players, and I'm not going to Bigfoot it. But you absolutely have to get the players to agree that a horror game is what is going to be played there uh, then. Because otherwise it's not going to happen, and you're just going to frustrate the players who do want horror as well as the players who don't want horror. And and that's not really the, the the goal of a role playing session of any kind, so that's the most important thing. I've seen this so many times uh, on the internet. People asking, especially on Reddit, you know, hey, how do I get my players invested in the horror game I'm running? I've tried, you know, mood lighting and scary music, and creepy voices and not creepy voices and everything else, and they all seem so bored. And my only the, the first question I have to ask every time is, did you ask them if they wanted to play a horror game? There's kind of an interesting social contract. I mean, again, I've noticed uh, running games uh, over the years, players who sit down to play Call of Cthulhu, or by now I assume Trail of Cthulhu, they've, they've already checked the mental box that says, yeah, I'm playing horror, and they come to the table willing to at least go crazy and die, because they know that is part of the game. And they may not you know expect everything else that comes with it, but they've at least let themselves in the front door of horror, but I think if you're just at your home group, and your home group, especially if you've been running a lot of other games of a lot of other sorts, getting them all to know that it's going to be horror, it's worth you know taking the 10 or 20 minutes and saying, hey guys, I'm thinking of doing a horror game, is everyone cool with that? Are you ready to, to do some horror? And if you've got a player who doesn't want to, then maybe you say, that's great, Chad, you can come back in a couple of months when we're done playing our horror game, or whatever it is. But you can't make that same sort of collaborative, okay, I guess three out of five people want to play horror, I'll be here, type decision-making that you do for, you know, which edition of D&D you're yeah. going to play. It's hard to argue with that. I, I, here's a question for you, Peter. When I was selling you on Inspectors, how much did I emphasize, in, in your perspective, the horror side of things? Like, did you know when I when we all kind of agreed, hey, let's play Inspectors, did did the horror part of that really feature at all? I, I know kind of intellectually what Inspectors is. You know, it's it's basically Ghostbusters, the role-playing game, with, you know, nothing that would violate copyright and get the author sued. Plus some reality TV tropes in there to make the game work better. So I knew there was going to be some horror tropes in there. Um, I was a little bit surprised how horrific you made the uh, the first haunting that we dealt with it was executed well so no objection i guess i wasn't really in there from the jump as um you know oh this is going to be a good scary game it was like well this is going to be another wacky hijinks game because that's what that group is into and kind of to go back to the the fruit analogy from earlier in the episode i think the horror is more like a, a saucer a glaze in this than the main course we are not getting out of the food hut on this episode, are we? I think you're not getting out of the Peter comes up with bizarre analogies hut, actually. But eh. Eh, it's still a hut. It's got a roof. It'll work. It's interesting to hear that because I had thought I'd emphasize that enough, but I'm wondering, having 
been talking about this if this is something that I had emphasized enough to get the right kind of buy-in, you know, to get people to buy into the game that was actually going to run, which is kind of supernatural meets Ghostbusters meets true TV. Well, I think in your case, you have that most coveted of things for a game master, which is to say a group that is enthusiastically bought into anything that will allow them to play together. And you can work really well with that. You just have to know that that's the kind of buy-in you have, and you have to either set the table with enough different dishes that everyone leaves full, to continue the food analogy, or you have to look into the thing that that one player likes in other contexts and see if you can bring them in the horror door through that. So if the thing that they really like is combat, you say, all right, we're going to emphasize, like you say, the supernatural part of this, and you're going to you know, armor up with rock salt and uh, the knife that can kill demons and uh, all these other things, and you provide a, a, a stellar combat during which that, that player who enjoys combat is also really worried either for their own skin or, better yet, for the skin of various NPCs or other fellow player characters who are also endangered by the horror, and by causing that player to think of something besides the immediate tactics of combat, they are getting a little more of what is making the horror special to the other players. But again, if that guy is like, nope, the only reason I'm here is because I like hex maps and no one will play Panzer Blitz with me, then there's there's no way to, to get that guy into horror, and you just, you know, don't bring him over for game night that one night. Well, I mean, wouldn't... Because uh, this is something that I've, I've sort of thought about and... And, and, and agonized over. W- wouldn't it be possible to get him into horror by, as a game, simply saying, okay, well, you're in this world, you have this monster, and this monster is demonstrably more powerful. And when he goes up to get it, he gets hurt. Like, yeah, you can charge at it, yeah, you can be, oh, well, I'm I'm doing all this tactical stuff, but it just, it, it's worthless. Like, or not worthless, like but... A... A recipe for frustration for that that guy. That's what I'm worried about in that case. I'm also wondering what distinguishes that from a dragon in a traditional fantasy setting. Basically nothing, actually. Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of my thought. And so you have to have something that distinguishes... Yeah, I mean, that's a really good analogy, and I think I make it in one of those books, is that if you're presenting someone fighting a dragon, you can tell that same story horrifically versus non-horrifically, and I think that if you look at, say, the dragon fight in Beowulf versus the dragon fight in Lord of the Rings, you can sort of get an idea of the different emotional registers that you hit. But to make it a horror encounter, you have to provide something more than, oh, this guy's five challenge ratings higher than my level. This is going to be a real slog, or I'd better think tactically about when I want to use my ring of running away, or whatever. And you need to provide an either extra horror tropes, the dragon is undead, the dragon is spreading plague with his breath, the dragon is surrounded by hordes of of mummies and skeletons that you have to chop your way through. Something about that dragon has to emblematize horror as opposed to merely emblematizing danger, because as I think someone said at the top of the show, then it's just an adventure story, and it may be an adventure story with vampires in it, but it's not really horror, and horror really requires that emotional connection between the player or at least the player character, if the player is really immersive, and the situation. And while, you know, you might think, you know, a paladin is going to be scared when he's going up against the dragon, it's not going to be the same sort of scared that you want. It's going to be the scared of a marine that has wandered into an ambush, not the scared of a marine that's wandered into a haunted house. Yeah. You you said something earlier that I think might be one of those things that GMs trying to run a horror game should really focus on, and that's caring about something else trying to protect something else not just oh i need to survive but oh i need to survive and make sure someone else or something else survives there's some goal that the monster or whatever source of horror there is threatens the thought of losing that is scarier than if i die well one of the scariest actual dragons that i can remember from fiction that i've read is actually the one in The Oath by Frank Peretti. Yeah. And it's symbolic of the sins of this whole town, and it's basically all the consequences of all this horrible stuff this very corrupt town has done coming back to collect. Yeah, Frank Peretti is such a, it's such a strange horror author 
because even in most horror, you know that horror will be vanquished or dealt with or, or diagnosed in some way. But Peretti, it's so front and center, and yet he still manages in the moment to make the confrontation of sort of uh, tense and literally horrifying that it's very interesting that he's able to do that given the narrative constraints that he puts himself into, that you know, absolute faith will absolutely save you, problem solved, and you'd think, well, then no one's in any danger. They're just going to be written as faithful people, and the problem will be will be fixed. But nope, that's not how it works. Yeah, there's always there's always somebody else that's, you know, maybe not quite as invulnerable that's at risk, or even just the way that he paints the picture of what's going on mm-hmm. makes you forget that for a while. Right, and that's and that's key too is is just living in the details and providing individual details or moments that have scared you from other media, you take those, you recycle them around, or you provide a detail that they're not used to getting in-game. In a Call of Cthulhu game that I ran, uh, the smell of juniper became the sort of signifier that Haster was somewhere nearby, because that's what I decided the air of Carcosa smelled like, was juniper. And so, you know, if you deploy it, if you deploy anything as though it is scary, and you do it correctly, you, you hit those timing beats just like in a horror movie, with the with the music and the soundtrack going, up, then you can scare people. And the fact that they are scared of something they couldn't explain to anyone in or out of game why they were scared by it, I think makes it really work. But you have to you have to do the sort of due diligence to find either how things become scary or find specifically scary things that you can use to, like you say, make them forget in the moment that they're a they're a tank with you know thirty DPS and they can always beat any dragon no matter how how buff. Yeah, and that might be one of the the key bits of advice for any GM who wants to run a horror game, is that horror games, really good horror games that actually approach that point where the player is scared, if not for themselves for their character, it takes work. It's not something that you can set up certain kind of plug and play bits and pieces. And just assume that everybody's going to have a good time with your horror game. You have to do that due diligence that you talked about. Set up the horror, get that slow build going to the point where when the action approaches the climax, you really feel it. I can tell you, I've I've listened to a lot of actual plays of horror games, and it always does seem like the ones that are the scariest are the longest actual play episodes. (laughs) It sounds kind of silly, but... There's a big difference between a Call of Cthulhu session that takes one hour to build up and a Call of Cthulhu session that takes five hours. I also think that a really big key thing here is also with the whole build-up that kind of runs into it is the buy-in from the players. Like yeah, to, to bring it back full yeah. circle. Yeah, If the players aren't invested, if they aren't interested, if they don't care or have buy-in, then nothing you're going to do is going to make them scared. It doesn't matter if the dragon is huge and terrible. If they're like, oh, well, we don't care about anything, then they're they're not going to worry. I know in the games that I've run, I've scared players a whole bunch of times because I just say, oh, no, no, the things that you care about are now being threatened. Yeah, nihilist murder hobos do not make good horror characters. Yeah, no, not at all. Nor really good characters in any genre at all. Uh, well, yeah. granted, but within, <laughs> within the specific context... They're even worse. It's sort of something that came up in my Dresden Files game recently. Is we have a character who doesn't know Dresden Files at all. The player completely never read any of the books. But we're sort of slowly introducing him to the world. And one of the things that I made him take as his trouble aspect was that he's a complete noob in the supernatural world. So anything that he doesn't know, he'll get chips for. And he'll be able to play into it. But he walked into a shop filled with dangerous magical artifacts... And the party left him alone. And so, I I think, Grant, you might know what happens with this happen. A coin fell off the shelf and rolled oh, at, at his feet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and everyone else was freaking out. Because they knew exactly what that coin was. And what it would do to him. And I played it right up. And I basically said, everyone else needs to be quiet. And I put, the, I put a chip at the guy. I say, you don't know anything about the supernatural world. Are you going to take the coin? And he said yes. And so now we have denarians. (laughs) And it worked because everyone cared about him. And while everyone knew what this was, and they sort of had built up the fear, like, he didn't. And so his very uh, general reaction was, oh my god, it was very tense, and people were on the edge of their seats, and 
And maybe that's not 100% horror, but it's sort of played into it. No, it's it's absolutely horror. I mean, it's exactly the don't go in the basement. You know, you're sitting in the theater on your couch and you shout that at the at the person on the screen. It's that same thing, and you can't shout. You can't warn them, so the, the players are feeling... A, a thrill of dread as they know that this idiot is going to pick up the coin and <laughs> the player is feeling a feel of dread because they don't know why everyone's feeling so dready and so I, that's one of the great things about role-playing games is if you can get that emotional state in one player or two players it will feed it will expand into the other players and they'll be like i don't know why i'm scared but i'm i'm literally you know terrified to open this next door in the dungeon <laughs> and, and because you've communicated I've never been that. I've so leery of rolling my own dice before. <laughs> yes, I, in my uh, Cthulhu uh, games, the sort of the signal that something had gone horribly wrong was when the player said, can we do something like that? And I would say, well, you can try. And that was apparently my, my verbal tell that something awful was about to happen. Uh-huh. And so they became meta-terrified because I, if I say you can try, that means, well, you'll fail, but you'll fail in a really horrible way. That, that and the uh, juniper-scented candles, and they were just petrified. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's a combination of, of the open gin bottle and you can try, I yeah. think. Mine was, oh, are you sure you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Because every time I say that, they're like, Wait, wait. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that was actually... Are you sure you want to do that is, I think, probably the most common GM tell. Mm-hmm. There was a guy that I ran in, in a Call of Cthulhu game with a long time ago. This was back when I was in college. And he was running a game, and we were going into the haunted house, and we're finding you know clues and diaries and paintings, and like you do. And we go down into the basement, and there's an army footlocker. The guy's a World War One vet, and so he's got his footlocker back from the war. And we open it up, and it's full of grenades. He's, like, taking grenades back home as souvenirs, I guess, or whatever. And we're sitting there looking at it, and we're like, you realize what this means, right? Whatever's in this house can't be killed by grenades. And so he actually <laughs> scared us with the treasure, which I think is something that is a, it's a high mark for, uh, for gaming. Yeah, you yeah. said something similar about an anti-material rifle in a Cartos episode, I think. Right, yeah. I think that was on yeah. Doug Cole's <laughs> Gaming Ballistic interview. But yeah, it's the same sort of concept. And that brings up one specific sort of doing your due diligence that I did want to talk about, and that's foreshadowing. I've seen too many horror games and horror stories of all types where there's not really any clues ahead of time that let you start imagining what the monster is or what the we're supposed to be afraid of. We, we walk into this thinking, oh, well, this is a horror story, right? There's something here I should be afraid of. And then it's just, you know, last page of the book or what have you. Oh, and then here's this scary thing. Well, that came out of nowhere. That's no fun. You have to pick a motif like those juniper berries or, you know, grenades, weaponry or something like that, or particular markings that you've seen all over the place that turn out to be a sign of occultists, what have you where you start giving people a motif that they focus on so that as that as they get close to the climax, they see it more and more, and it's sort of their clue of, hey, this is something related. This is something that you will understand when the climax approaches, and then it'll all click into place, and you'll go, oh, of course, I should have seen this coming. Not That foreshadowing, I think, is one of the most important things that you have to do. It works in a lot of games, but horror in particular because you don't want kind of this deus ex machina monster, it's really important. It's something that I think you've got to include. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that the gumshoe system works as well for horror as it does, is because it requires the GM to think about what kind of clues are going to be planted in the course of the game. Mm -hmm. And so that makes them sort of responsible for providing those sorts of either, you know, external signs that don't actually mean anything until you put them all together... Or, you know, ways that the players can be thinking constantly about what sort of horror is coming after them and uh, what that means for the uh, and, and what that means for the for, for the solution of the mystery, but also what that means to the potential that their character will be horribly mangled or that that nice lady who owns the vampire house will be horribly mangled will provide you that. You know, and movies do this really well all the time. And if you watch horror movies, which I can't recommend enough, you will ideas as to how to put stuff into your game 
that is like that specific pattern or the or the juniper that doesn't make a lot of sense. In Contracted, it begins with this really strong blue and gold palette, and then as the film goes on and as our main character becomes more and more infected by the awful thing that she's infected by, the colors desaturate and the palette gets more and more washed out. And you can't really say that in the game. Everything looks like it's a washed-out palette now, but you can provide vocal clues, that if something was brown at the beginning, you can describe things later as tan, and then as taupe, and then as uh, yellowish, or yellowed, and provide something so that the players, as they're listening to it, are putting things together in a pattern that is not logical, that does not even necessarily tell them anything about the horror, but that nonetheless tells them, yes, a progression is going on that is getting in a direction we would not want it to go, because no one would rather be yellowish than brown, obviously. That's, you know, that's not the direction you want to go chromatically. Yeah, I, I remember watching Sunshine not all that long ago, and they did that in the very first scene with actual characters. There's a tiny bit of narration at the start. Sunlight, you know, this burning, brilliant sunlight as the, the ship is approaching the sun is the enemy, <laughs> if you will. And they have one of the characters sitting there in this viewing room burning himself with the sunlight and it that ends up being a precursor to the monster in the the film that isn't the sunlight there, there's an actual monster can the last thing we wanted to talk about is maybe the most important of them how do we as christians handle horror and specifically how do we handle creating horror stories and horror games, uh, whether as a, a player or a GM, we're all participating in the collaborative storytelling process. How do we approach that as Christians? Is there anything that we can't necessarily do or go in with eyes wide open? Or do we, are we okay to say, hey, you know what, this is fun, let's embrace it and not worry about it? Where, where does, is there something we do as Christians that's unique to that perspective? Well, I don't necessarily want to say unique. I mean, because obviously there are plenty of people who play all kinds of horror games from all kinds of faith perspectives, and I haven't really noticed Mm -hmm. a a vast difference one way or the other. Um, I will say that, you know, sort of on the meta level, it's just our job as, as Christians and as decent human beings not to run a game with a theme or about a topic or with a trope that will genuinely traumatize someone else. Right. If you've got a, a friend in the in the group has had a miscarriage, maybe you don't really want to go after the Rosemary's Baby uh, horror of abortion, any of that area of the universe. You tell, you know, for her, you tell a whole different batch of horror stories. You do the one about the zombie cannibals or something, right? And so that is just, you know, in, in general, it's like um, there's a difference between someone who, like myself, is squicked out by rats and someone who has a genuine, you know, like crippling phobia or whatever, you don't play on that. That's just sadism, it's not horror. And I think that if you are concerned, obviously, that your spirituality is in danger from something that you're doing, the general response is don't do that. I mean, and everyone's line, I think, of where they feel that they have crossed over from, wouldn't it be fun to pretend that there is no god and that all deities are giant, maltheistic alien monsters, is fun to... I find that as I think more about Lovecraft or I play more Lovecraft games, I find it harder to exit that mental space or to remove that, take that hat off and, and, and hang it on the, on the shelf again. Um, and that's an individual response. You're going to find your faith is going to be um, uh, you know, undermined in whatever way it's going to be undermined. That's just the way that the world works. I think that you can look at people like Russell Kirk, who, of course, wrote some of the best ghost stories in American history, and if you read what he did for horror, or M.R. James, who is obviously a a, a believing Anglican, or uh, Stoker, even, who obviously has the cross and the uh, kukri knife as both crucial elements in defeating Dracula, you can look at, there's plenty of Christian horror out there that is really good and really strong and really effective, and if you feel like you are in a place where your faith is challenged by the games you're running or playing, you can go back and find how people of faith have created horror and maybe stick to that that part of the playground for a bit until you feel like you've maybe built up some of those immune systems. Heck, I'd go ahead and plug Frank Peretti again. You know, Some of his better stuff, like The Oath or The Visitation, is not a bad place yeah. to start. Okay. Um, I, I'm curious, too, does your faith 
and this is approaching it more from a writing perspective, does your faith inform the horror that you write? As, aside from the, the very general level of, you know, this is a person who has shaped me, is, are there religious elements that you bring into your writing or anything along those lines? Since most, much of the writing that I do is Lovecraftian horror, if I let my religious faith into it, I'm damaging the art because the central concept of cosmic horror is we are alone in the universe. And obviously that's the anti the central concept of Christianity. So you can't really have them both there together. If you do that, you get at best August Durleth's good stuff and at worst August Durleth's bad stuff. Or, you know, I'm sure that there is even worse Christological Cthulhu stories. Brian Lumley's creation of Cthanid, Cthulhu's good twin, is pretty horrific on that level, and not in a good way. <laughs> but uh, So much of the horror that I write has to be written not from a perspective of horror that takes place in a Christian universe, but something that is terrifying if it turns out we're wrong, and there isn't a god, there isn't anything out there. And that is one of the things that makes, I think, the, the Puritans that Lovecraft kept going back to unwillingly as the taproot of a lot of his regional horror so powerful because their faith, while so strong, was also so always being doubted. And if you read like a biography of Cotton Mather, I think reading that biography of Cotton Mather may have done a lot for my horror writing because you read his own self-doubt as he's writing in his diaries and he's writing his letters to people. He's saying, this is great, I'm Cotton Mather, but on the other hand, there's a lot of sin and awfulness in my heart, much less Salem, much less everywhere else in Massachusetts. This could all be really bad. Maybe I'm going to hell. Maybe there isn't a hell. And he had real doubts and, and wrestled with his faith, just like I think everyone does. And so looking at something like Cotton Mather doubting himself and taking that literally existential horror and trying to, I guess, rhyme with it as I write Lovecraftian horror has done a lot for my Lovecraftian-ness. I mean, that's one of the reasons that Night's Black Agents is such a, a relief for me, because, no, you can absolutely have vampires who are driven back by crucifixes or by the host, and that's because God hates vampires and God likes you, and that's a really good, strong story, and it hasn't been vitiated by the source material. I'm trying to think of anything that I can add to that. That was really good. Do you guys have any sort of personal responses any times when you've been playing horror games and you're thinking, well, that was a little close to the edge for me? Not really, because... I haven't played a lot of horror games. I've I've been in Grants, obviously, but we've only done a couple sessions of that. We did uh, some character creation, and then we did one case. Adulthood and fall and soon winter. Oh, boy. Um, so I find as I'm reading through books about it, because I have a campaign setting of my own that I'm hoping to run our group through when we wrap up with another game that we're on that has some horror elements to it. I find it, I kind of reject a lot of the cosmicism sort of out of hand um, and go for more visceral ground level stuff. Um, you know, this is, this is going to harm a lot of innocent people. Um, not, you know, nothing is waiting for you, but an empty void when you die. And, I guess that's informed by my own personal faith. There's a lot of, of neat stuff in like the, the literature and tropes of Christianity that, that I think makes for powerful horror material. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Demons and... Yeah, The Exorcist, obviously, is a triumph of, you know, Christian horror. Yeah, but I mean, even even to like the uh, the story where Christ crosses the lake to deal with the guy who's living in the cemetery, I mean, that's... That's pretty scary if you're there any time before Christ gets there and shoves all the demons out of him into mm -hmm. the herd of swine, right? Yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> um, if you read uh, "Declare" by Tim Powers, which is a very uh, it's it's a Christian. Uh, he, he's a Catholic, and he very much informs his horror uh, with his religious faith, and his horror is very much about being forcibly separated from God and. The, the, the jinn, the anti-gods in, uh, in that novel are terrific representations of what you're talking about, the horror that exists on the, on the edges or within uh, various parts of Christian mythology or Christian uh, symbolism. Uh, if, even the generally terrible movie Constantine with Keanu Reeves, the way that it used the sort of the tropes and the symbolism of Christianity as, uh, to create horrific uh, set pieces was really, really good. Yeah, the visuals in that were great. The story, not so mm -hmm. much, but... Yeah, and the casting, oh. of course, hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, that same storyline in the the Hellblazer comic had had a lot of that same sort of thing. And that, and Hellblazer itself as a comic is very much a horror story with a lot of these same elements, but it's also hey, here's one guy whose faith is kind of shaky even though he's talking with angels and demons and, you know, making literal deals with the devil and tricking them all in the process. It's still, despite that very large scale, is a very personal story. And I think if you're, it's a good way to approach it if you're worried about that part of things because you can simply say, you know, yes, th- we can leave those big questions to your imagination and let you come up with your own answers. But in the meantime, that's a horde of rats Mm -mm. and you need to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. The notion of plant your own garden, or in this case, you know, root the mummies out of your own garden is a good way to, to take things. If you're, you say, no, the metaphysical implications of this universe might indeed be terrifying. Fortunately, you've got a ghoul to kill first. And if you let the metaphysical implications merely be emphasized by tropes, and then fade again once the horror is destroyed, like at the end of the Shunned House, where birds uh, perch in the trees and an apple grows there, then that's that's as Christian as Lovecraft gets, I guess, is the redemption of killing the monster that, that took your grandfather uh, away from you. Well, and speaking of redemption, I think that's one of the more interesting things to play around with. Um, as you guys were talking, Hellboy popped into my mind. So here's something, you know, that's quite possibly actually from hell you know he he is quite possibly a, a literal demon i know there's some ambiguity in the um at least some of the books that i've read i haven't read the entire body of work on hellboy but I'm pretty sure that mike mignola hasn't either yeah <laughs> he doesn't want to be on that side you know he's filed his horns down to the point where they look like goggles you know he's working for the good guys he is a practicing catholic and it's like well what happens to him when something finally kills him yeah yeah, and I, I think that that is what I talked about when you take something that's your own existential terror and you blow it up. And it's like, what happens if, you know, if Cotton Mather is worried? What happens when he dies? What if he was bad? And I think we can all sort of identify with that same sort of questioning. And that is something that's really important to do because if you're a player character and you're going after horror, you've been touching a lot of awful demony stuff. Right? You're using, maybe you're using black magic to contain other black magic, or you have to stab uh, something with, with a demon knife, or you've, you know, participated in some sort of, you know, communication with a demon to get information. You know, all of this stuff, in theory, is pretty damnable, I mean, literally. And so, you're like, where is my character exactly on that balance? The game Cult, uh, the Swedish role-playing game Cult, did kind of an interesting, if Gnostic, and therefore perhaps not entirely reliable uh, approach to it. But it did a lot with that, what's your character's internal moral state? And even the new Vampire has been uh, more concerned with that than old editions of Vampire were. By new, I mean not new anymore, but the Requiem. Oh, okay. Not the V20, which I think went back to Masquerade. The middle version? Yeah, I guess, whichever. But Requiem had a lot of, you know, what's the state of your soul? What are the sins that you're committing? What are you leaving yourself open to? In a way that the uh, older editions did not really... Uh, they had this sort of generic humanity versus not humanity. Yeah, even um, the New World of Darkness Mortals book has a uh, sort of humanity-ish stat mm-hmm. that kind of tracks your characters. How far are they willing to go to give it the most verbose description possible? Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of it, but it's what lengths are you willing to go to 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 accomplish your task? And what's the line where you say this much, but no more. Go back to a little bit more practical advice. I think avoiding some of these huge metaphysical questions, if you're, say, running a a horror game at a convention or something, is just kind of a good, safe strategy so that it makes the game inviting to more people. Well, and I don't think you've got enough time to really dig into them if you want to use them in a four-hour convention slot either. Very possibly not. Clinging to those quick and easy tropes and letting people sort of draw their own conclusions and maybe hint at some of these things, trying to get too eschatological about it. Yeah, con games are a a whole different sort of challenge, and it's very, very difficult to do anything that requires uh, reiteration or the the long, slow burn in those. You pretty much have to just stick to terror and hope it works out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, You know, one last question for you, Ken. Uh, Just because you have been in the industry for some period of time... I'm, I'm trying to be generous. Come on. Um, <laughs> well, at, at some point, it just be, stops being generous and starts being mean. <laughs> Fair enough. You've been in it 
for a while. And I'm curious to know if you've ever gotten any pushback for the things you have written, because you, you do focus so heavily on horror. I can count probably on one hand the number of bad interactions of any kind that I've had from fans, um, because for whatever reason, I don't attract the element that is uh, confrontational and annoying. I attract the element that is the kind of people that I would want to play with, which I guess is another argument for writing the games you would want to play. But I have not gotten anyone who says, you know, I'm shocked and appalled that you would imply in Trail of Cthulhu that Yahweh is Yogg-Sothoth. And it's like, did you notice the part where it was a game? Did you notice the part where it was horror? Did you notice the part in Lovecraft where he explicitly says all human religions come from the great old ones? That's not me, that's Lovecraft. I just took that one level farther. Um, I did actually, when I was writing the Canite Heresy for uh, Vampire, the Dark Ages, and I, in the outline, I put here's what the vampires believe, uh, that Jesus was a vampire. And I put that in the outline, and I sent it up to the developer. And Rich Dansky, the developer, said, Ken, you can say that, but I'm a Jew who lives in Georgia. If I publish that, <laughs> there's going to be problems. <laughs> so I got pushback from my developer, and so I had to sort of hedge it around and put it in a tiny little box and make it very, very deniable on Rich's part. Um, uh, and then mention, I think, in a disclaimer that I didn't believe anything of the sort. But yeah, I think that's the closest I've gotten to religious pushback for any horror element that I've put into the game. And even in Canine Heresy, that was the context of a heresy. That was the context that other vampires think that's crazy, much less the rest of the church. And so um, that was kind of an interesting approach. But no, I've never had anyone, you know, denounce me as a blasphemer or, or whatever else. I think part of it is that um, as a Presbyterian, we we got that all out of our system with John Knox and haven't bothered to do it since. As a as a Presbyterian myself, it's it is one of the things I like is we can just sort of have conversations about things. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, uh, when I was uh, learning the the Westminster Confession and things like that, the emphasis was on things being done decently and in order. And I think that's that's actually a, a pretty good start on how to live your life. You you can mm. amount to decently and in order. The rest of it yeah. will take care of itself. All right. I have nothing else, I think. Peter, Brandon? I'm good. I, I, I've enjoyed listening. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for saving us from our out-of-rhythm selves, Ken. No problem. <laughs> yes, I appreciate it. No, if, uh, if, if your well, goal is to have someone else uh, monopolize all the time on your podcast, inviting me onto it is the way to do it's that. It's seemed to work out yeah, well so far. Yeah, it worked out well for us. Okay. I enjoyed it. Well, Ken, thanks very much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. No, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. It's good to have you. And... Uh, real quick, that's, again, Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com, and is there a site that you have that's, you know, links to all of your various different works and that sort of thing? I should have a webpage, and if Will Hindmarch is listening to this, he is right now uh, writing down one more punch in the arm he owes me. But certainly for now, you can follow me on Facebook or on Twitter, and you'll see most of it at some time or another. But, uh, yeah, f uh, you know, Facebook me or Twitter me, and you'll get as much as you need. And of course, Dracula Dossier on Kickstarter. Go out there now and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll become so very tired of hearing me plug that that it'll seem like you've been following me for years. Fair enough. <laughs> well, from all of us here at Saving the Game, Ken, thanks again for joining us. Have a good one yourself. And from all of us here, catch you later. Bye, everybody. See ya. Bye. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.